This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When it comes to elder abuse, Colorado is playing catch-up. A couple of years ago, the state became one of the last to make the reporting of elder abuse mandatory. And as CPR health reporter John Daly explains, state lawmakers have passed another bill. It would make it easier for prosecutors to seek justice for elderly victims. At an elder care facility in Wheat Ridge, Tisha Mueller sits by a fountain in a courtyard. She's with her 92-year-old mother, Patricia. Are you getting warm or are you doing okay? I'm getting warm. Mueller says Patricia recently went through a terrible ordeal at another assisted living facility. She noticed bruises on her mom. Just all over her body. She would have hematomas on her arms and her hands. Nurse would have to come lance some. At first, a nurse practitioner dismissed it, saying older people have thin skin. But then another staff member said they saw a female caregiver punch Mueller's mom in the face. A subsequent review of videotape from security cameras caught the same caregiver manhandling her mother, even pulling her hair and snapping her head back. It breaks my heart what she's been through, huh, sweet pea? The caregiver who hurt Patricia was eventually prosecuted and pled guilty. She was sentenced to 30 days in jail, probation, and a heavy fine. Mueller says the abuse might have been caught earlier, but her mom couldn't really say what had happened. My mom a couple times had told me, someone's hurting me here, but with her dementia, you didn't know if it was true or if she was just saying it. Then she would be on another topic. Last year, 17,000 elder abuse cases were filed throughout the state. It was a dramatic increase from the year before. It came after the state mandated that doctors, social workers, first responders, pharmacists, a long list of professionals, report any suspected abuse of an older adult. And not just physical abuse. Financial abuse is another huge problem. Tons, tons of financial exploitation of at-risk population. Daily, multiple cases a day. That's Tracy Kravitz. She's a detective with Boulder Police. This day, she's working a case involving a phone scammer. Someone calls an elderly person from out of state, even out of the country. The caller uses persuasion or charm, even threats, to convince them to send money. The elderly population is just very trusting. If someone calls them on the phone and says, hey, I need your bank information, I need your social security number, they don't know to ask the follow-up questions. Wait, who are you? Where are you calling from? Can I call you back to verify that? They just immediately open up their checkbook and start reading numbers. The result, she says can be disastrous. Oh, it's awful. People lose their homes, they lose their life savings, they lose their retirement. Crimes against the elderly are probably the lowest risk and highest reward crimes of the 21st century. That's Jane Walsh. Walsh is lead prosecutor in the county's Community Protection Division. She says the elderly are easy targets, but cases involving victims with shaky memories or failing health can be hard to prosecute. There is really a huge increase in this type of crime, and I would say particularly on the financial side. It's that fact that led Walsh, other prosecutors, and a coalition of advocates to push state lawmakers to make a small but key change in the law. It allows prosecuting attorneys to expedite the videotaping of a deposition of an elder abuse victim. Right now, it can take as long as four months. Wheat Ridge Democrat Jesse Danielson is the bill's sponsor. It seemed like one very logical, common-sense, small step towards solving a very large problem facing older Coloradans across the state. Back in her office, prosecutor Jane Walsh plays on a computer screen a deposition from a recent case 
that illustrates the issue. Did you fill out these documents? Yeah, I did. A man in his late 90s struggles to remember details of various checks totaling $43,000. He signed them over to alleged scammers in an asphalt paving scheme. After you filled them out, didn't you mail them to the police? I sure don't remember. In elder cases, you're always working against the clock. Walsh says the two to four months it takes now is a big obstacle to making a case viable. Before your elderly victim gets to a point where they really are not able to testify or sometimes sadly have passed away. The new law will allow those depositions to take place with the judge's approval within 14 days. AARP was one of the groups that pushed for it. Elder attorney Dennis Alexander is their legislative advocate. I don't have any doubt that it'll make a difference. There'll be cases that'll be prosecuted that couldn't have been without this bill. And it's likely there will be plenty of cases as Colorado's elderly population skyrockets. I'm John Daly, CPR News. All right, let's dive deeper now into the financial side of elder abuse. In John's story, we met Detective Tracy Kravitz. She works in Boulder Police's Financial Crime Unit and specializes in exploitation of at-risk adults. Tracy, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. When our reporter John Daly spoke with you, you were working on a case involving a phone scam. Um, Explain how one of these scams works. The ones that we've been working on target at-risk adults, so we're talking normally people over 70 years of age, and it starts really simply with a phone call to their home. Most of these uh, people have landlines, and then the one that I've been working on, she got a call at her home, and the person identified themselves as an FBI agent. And the caller proceeded to tell our victim that she had won a lottery, and he was going to help her facilitate bringing that lottery winnings into the country because the, the money was out of the country. And because he's with the FBI, he could help her bring it into the country. I mean, it raises all kinds of red flags for me. Why wouldn't it for someone who's 70 or older? That's a great question. They are pretty convincing on the phone. They normally know a little bit about the person when they call. They know where they live. Maybe they know something about the family. And there's a lot of sweet talk that's going on during this conversation. The one that I'm talking about right now, it happened pretty quickly, but some of these scams, they build up over time. So maybe the first call is just some rapport building, and then there's a call the next day and the next day. And um, then this victim just looks forward to these phone calls. So... After the rapport building that goes on, eventually our suspect is going to be asking the victim for some money, normally in the form of taxes that they have to pay to help them bring the money into the country. But the victim are normally people who are isolated. They might live alone. Maybe they don't get out a lot. So this phone call and this person being interested in them and then the allure of, hey, I have this golden pot at the end of the rainbow, all these factors together, just it's called the hook. They, they just hook them in. How do you do this work? How <laughs> do you do this work? It's just that um, it's so disgusting. Absolutely, and that's why we do it. You know, unfortunately, a lot of these kind of cases, especially the phone scams, we don't really get to arrest someone at the end of the day because they're either not in country, they're not in state, they're almost impossible to find. So our, our role really transitioned from an investigator to more in a social worker type role, and we just try to stop the bleeding. We just try to stop these people from sending this money because some are losing their retirement and their their life savings. And we just want to help educate them and and stop them from literally throwing their money away. 
Do the perpetrators ever get arrested if they're abroad um, and it's just that you don't do the arresting or they're mostly getting off scot-free? You know, I'm not going to say never because there are, are some lucky cases, but for the ones that I work predominantly, my jurisdiction is Boulder County, Colorado, or specifically the city of Boulder. We have some ways to work out of Boulder and maybe get other agencies and other states involved, but it's it's really unlikely we're going to find the ringleader in the United States that we can get. And to be honest, these are happening so often on a federal level, the FBI doesn't have the manpower or, you know, the resources to go after all these things. How much money have you seen seniors lose in scams like this? I've seen a victim send well over $70,000. $70,000? $70,000, yes. And where did that leave him or her? Oh, not in a good spot. Um, that individual pretty much tapped their resources. They had nothing left for, for themselves. They had nothing left to give their family. It, it's just a really sad situation. And then they're left to just live on whatever maybe Social Security or income that they're getting and their savings is gone. And I presume that uh, in the way that these perpetrators aren't prosecuted or even arrested, that it's rare for the money to be recovered? Oh, it's extremely rare. The only time we've ever seen the money recovered is if you can find that middleman, the middleman person that might be receiving the money and before they send it off. Um, it's not unheard of to be able to track that person down and maybe get them on the phone and explain to them that, hey, you just received this money and it's actually stolen funds because maybe they, they answered a work-at-home ad or something to receive money and then send it off somewhere else. So I've had one one case where the money has been returned. I see, but that middleman or woman um, could be unsuspecting. Oh, absolutely. Interesting. Okay, and then you have to follow the trail. Um, do the people on the phone ever coerce the, the elderly person? Um, yeah, absolutely. Normal. So like I said, it normally starts off as a, a really nice relationship. There's the rapport building. There's the trust that's built. They normally refer to these people, uh, our, our recent victim, as, well, she said, they always call me honey and sweetie. And, it, and it's a nice relationship. And as our victim is sending money, it's all great. But then once the victim either gets a clue and, and lets them know, like, hey, I'm not sending any more money. Maybe I don't have any more money to give you or my family told me to stop or the police are now involved. Then it turns kind of scary. Then they have like a whole new script they have to go off and the phone calls don't stop. They continue excessively and then they start to threaten them. They start to say, well, you know, I'm with the FBI. I'm going to come to your house and arrest you. We had a victim two weeks ago that was told that her house was going to get burned down and they were going to come to kill her just to you know, scare tactics to get them to send more money. According to the National Council on Aging, more than 90 percent of reported elder abuse is committed by a member of the person's own family. So I want to turn this conversation from kind of the outside threat to the potential for the financial threat to come from within. Um, Sure. You know, maybe that's a family member. Maybe it's a caregiver. Do you see that to a kind of case? Oh, absolutely. We see a ton of those cases. And they're normally that we refer to them as that financial exploitation cases. And yeah, it's it's different dynamics than the phone scam because these are people they know, these are people they trust, these are family members, these are caregivers, these could be neighbors, friends, uh, and it happens a lot. Are there things that people can do as neighbors of elderly people to help them, to recognize the signs, or, you know, is this solved through the community in some regard? 
I really wouldn't put a lot on the neighbors. It depends how close they are. You know, other than checking in on these people, I really don't know how a neighbor could help and influence what they're doing financially. It really falls on, I think, the family to take an active role in what's going on and, and try to do things to help protect, almost like a checks and balances, too, to to get on board with your either elder mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, and 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 kind of monitor their, their finances and their bank accounts, not take it over because the elder community does not give up their independence lightly, but just as a, a checks and balances. It could be a cosigner on an account. It could be a POA that's just there for emergency purposes, but then it gives them access to these accounts and they could see what's going on and making sure, you know, the money is not just going out to these random places. POA, a power of attorney, you're saying? Correct. Any other tips? How about for, you know, this community that we're talking about with the phone scams, if someone calls you up on the phone and asks you for any personal identifying information, don't give it, period. You know, no legitimate agency, financial institution, or anyone is going to call you on the phone and ask for your social security number. They're not going to ask for your bank account number. They're not going to ask you what you have in the bank. And that's what these people do. How about just getting rid of your landline? That's great. And we try, but unfortunately, people are people who have landlines are so tied to them. Either they don't have a cell phone or they think the landline, you know, they're not going to be able to survive without it there. They'll say, oh, my doctor has this number or this is what my daughter calls on. And it's very hard for them to give up that landline. The best we can offer is, hey, how about get a phone with caller ID? And if you, you know, you recognize this number as someone we've just told you is scamming you, don't pick it up. But it, it normally doesn't work. Do you have a list of numbers to be wary of that we could disseminate? Uh, So when we find people that are getting scams, say, from places in Nigeria, it's not one number. When we pull their phone records, it could be five or six numbers because these people are normally working out of call centers. And it's just it's crazy. Um, They call from a ton of numbers. They spoof their numbers. They change their numbers. It's pretty much next to impossible to say, hey, just avoid this number and you'll be fine. At the conclusion of these investigations, is there an embarrassment on the part of the victim? Oh, a huge embarrassment. Huge. And I think that's part of the problem with us coming forward, the police coming to their house. It starts with us showing up. They're embarrassed. You know, these are smart people. These are educated people, you know, admitting it to themselves, admitting it to their family that they've been scammed. It's really hard for them to swallow. Is there more of this going on? You know, we're seeing more of it as a law enforcement agency, mostly because of the mandatory reporting law that went into effect in 2014. There's so many people that are mandatory reporters, and when they find out about something like this, they have to call, and law enforcement has to be notified. I think it was happening before, but people just weren't calling. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Tracy Kravitz is a detective with the Boulder Police Department. She specializes in the financial exploitation of seniors. Just ahead, a lawsuit filed by female pilots related to pregnancy and breastfeeding leads us to ask why there are so few women in the cockpit. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Four female pilots of Denver-based Frontier Airlines filed discrimination charges last week. They say Frontier's policies fail to accommodate pregnant and breastfeeding pilots. In a statement, Frontier responded, quote, Our policies and practices comply with all federal and state laws. They went on to say, while there are many workplaces that might allow for nursing mothers to express breast milk during a break from work activities, the duties of a commercial airline pilot present unique circumstances. 
The complaint was made to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. For now, we want some perspective on what it is to be one of the 5%. That is, just 5% of airline pilots are women. Carlene Pettit has flown for eight carriers over three decades. She is still in the skies, but didn't want to identify her employer as she's not speaking on behalf of an airline. She's also a writer who has put together training manuals and company procedures. And she's with us via Skype from her home base, which is Seattle. And uh, Carlene, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah, I'll say that some surveys actually put the number of female pilots to just 3% of those in commercial cockpits. Uh, What are some of the reasons you think that's true? Um, You know, Ryan, actually, we hear the number 6% go around, but that's actually 6% of licensed pilots. There's a lot of general aviation pilots. Um, That 5%, I still think it's a little bit high. Mm. Some of the the airlines are down about 3.5%. You know, and it's it's challenging to be a mother and a pilot. And so in my generation, I, I started, what, 34 years ago. And my plan was I, I always knew from nine years old I was going to be a pilot. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to have my kids and I'll, I'll start when I'm fought, when they're all in school, you know, five, five on up. And that was my option. And I actually started when the youngest was two because an opportunity prevailed. But But you have a choice. Either you wait. Or you're going to not have children and give up the chance for a family and a career, or you're going to do it all. And it's really difficult to do it all unless, you know, in my generation, there's the women who flew and had babies right now were the ones who could financially afford it. You know, they had the nannies and, the, you know, they were, they were came from a different station in life from, from normal population like myself. So there's three types and it's, it's really challenging. And in today's world, um, We've got these young ladies who are trying to get into this. So we're in a world now where you can do it all. You know, before you stayed home, you, women weren't allowed to work. And then they allowed us to come into the workplace. You had to make a choice, mother at work. And now we're into the new, new generation where we can do it all. But doing it all with this job, you know, is a challenge. And, and it takes a little bit more support than it does for, you know, from the male population yeah. being a and that support that these uh, four pilots at Frontier say they were not receiving, again, the airline says it's it's in lockstep with what uh, regulations are. I, I want to say just in terms of the number, there are even fewer female captains. So there's the question of pilots in general and then of captains in particular. Um, but in, in, to this idea of having it all, being um, both a mother and flying, what are the challenges? Because I, I can see the difficulties both for the, the the female pilots and for the airlines to make those kinds of accommodations in a job where you really have to be very present, right? You do. And, and you know, it's like it's about balancing. And whether you're a woman or a man, you have life stuff going on. You know, men have their parents too. And so whatever's going on with the child at home, part of being a pilot is the ability to to um, separate your tasks and you go to work and and you you focus on the job and so the stigma of well mothers are going to be in the airplane thinking about their kids that should be no different than men in the airplane thinking about their kids or their wife or their finances you know so we try and you know create the um, you know focus is the key and that's it and I've done I've spent 21 years training pilots and teaching people how to just focus on the task 
and leave that aside is, um, you know, that's the key. And that's what pilots are really specialized. What we're really capable of doing is because we can do that. And there's great power in that. Now, this motherhood thing, you know, we're having a pilot shortage right now. And I really think that airlines are remiss in what they're doing because, you know, I, I look at the stats probably more, you know, three and a half, maybe four percent of women are pilots. And if you think about this pilot shortage, where are we going to get the pilots? We can get them from the female um, population, except for right now, women are thinking they don't have the ability to do this. And in this lawsuit that came out, it's showing what some of the challenges are. So if airlines just created, I mean, if the commuters created more worker-friendly environment for these young women coming up in their childbearing years that enabled them to job share, provided, you know, areas for them to nurse or, you know, and just extra things they needed, those commuters would learn that women would be more dedicated and loyal to their company because just because we're starting out with a two and three year old, then we go into the grade school level, then we go into the teenage years and there's always parenting challenges. Let, let me just, uh, Carlene, the, explain, yeah. when, you, when you say commuters, what you're referring to there are the commuter airlines because you say there's a real difference in the accommodations made between those smaller commuter carriers and the big sort of flagship carriers. Is that right? Oh, yeah. You know what yeah. the big difference is, is financial. These commuter carriers, some of these, some of these people are making $30,000 a year. I actually took a pay cut to start my first airline job from my high school job. That's how bad it is. And so you don't have the financial resources to get help. L- and- let me go back to this idea, though, of the logistics of um, like breastfeeding, for instance, or of pumping, and what kinds of accommodations could be made f- for that? And, uh, you know, what some of these women at Frontier are requesting is just a temporary alternative assignment that might permit them to continue working during pregnancy or as they're breastfeeding. Um, right now, they're, they're taking some unpaid time off for that, I understand. Yeah, and and that's that is a very extremely viable uh, you know option because there's every training department these these ladies could be instructors, they could be working in the office. There there's there's numerous jobs behind the scenes that their talents as airline as airline pilots could be utilized as resources, but they're not. And even we're working within the union, they could their unions they could be utilized, but they're not. Um, so yeah, they, they could and they should because, you know, what we do sometimes is legally, you know, we say, oh, we meet the legality, but legality doesn't mean it's always the right thing to do. It means it's the minimum thing to do. It's a minimum expected that somebody is forcing you to do the minimum to meet this letter of the law. And, you know, I think for for the health and, the, you know, the future of our industry, we really need to start taking into account that there's a variety of circumstances. And once again, it goes back to, you know, if I was running, we're running an airline, I would create an opportunity for not losing my resources and making them go unpaid to bring them in and being part of this airline family to help build and grow and support. And you're going to have dedicated po- pilots. And you're also going to, you know, we have to think about this with the the women are bringing these children. We're supporting our world by bringing these children into the world. You know, the airlines, there's an opportunity for men quite often that pilots will leave the military, get hired by the airline, and then they have the opportunity to 
go back to the reserves and their job is secure. So they're getting a, actually quite often getting paid more in the reserves than they would at the airline job. Carlene, I'm, I'm getting a little would, noise on your on your headset there from Skype. Oh, so if you'll, if you'll keep that uh, nice and static. I, I just want to go again to, to this logistics of, of um, pumping while in the air. Do you, are, are accommodations made for that when you're in the cockpit? Well, I've never had to experience that myself, but there's no accommodations made for for pumping in the air itself. There's no you can't there's no room on the airplane and and you know, unless they went into the lavatory to do that. So So part of the question is whether those facilities are made available on the ground then, I presume. It, it would be on the ground yeah. because really you don't the, the commuter flights and the length of the flight. I fly 14, 12 to 14 hour flights. That's not what these ladies at this level of their career doing yeah. they're doing more one two hour flights and so they they could schedule it but it would be mean just a little bit more time between one leg to the next and not rushing when we put out word that we wanted to talk to female pilots we heard actually from quite a few including jean harper she was one of the first three female pilots who flew for united she retired in 2013 and she says things really have improved since her early days from the perspective of someone who was in near the beginning of women being hired, we've come a long way in almost 40 years. At first, we were petrified to step out of line. Uh, the job was so hard won that we didn't want to do anything to threaten it, to stand out, to be different, or to be appear weak, whiny, incapable, because that's what the men were threatening, <laughs> uh, that we were going to quit because we couldn't handle it. So we put up with a lot of garbage that we probably should not have. But over the years, sensitivities have changed. People have become more accepting. And now uh, if women see something that isn't working for them, we actually seem to have the confidence to be able to step up and say, I have the right to express my needs and I expect them to be met if you want me to continue as an employee here. In general, how have you been treated by male pilots? I, I have gone from exactly what she said from when I first started uh, chief pilot or actually I was flying with him through his flight bag on the ground and said, I don't want you here. You're taking a man's job. Um, it has transitioned into acceptance, but I'm also at a level where I've got seven type ratings that I've instructed for 21 years. And so I have a little bit more, um, acceptance because of my experience level. And so there still is, I had to prove myself when I got on that 747 uh, as a new hire and the pilots, they'd look back and they said, it was kind of like, why did you get here? You know, why are you here? Is it because you're a woman? And that's always been the stigma. So when I was able to say I did this and this and this and this, all of a sudden they realize I have more experience than they did and I'm accepted. So it still is a challenge as you're working up. And I thought it was better. I thought it was but there have been, over the last six months, numerous signs and situations that have been arising that indicates we're not there yet. It is better, but we're not there yet. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Commercial pilot Carlene Pettit flies internationally for a major U.S. carrier. She's also an author whose fiction books include Flight for Control and Flight for Safety. Coming up, enlisting students to help fight religious extremism. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. ISIS and other extremist groups often recruit online. 
answer the call of Allah and His Messenger when He calls you to what gives you life. Imam Al-Qurtubi says that what gives you life is jihad. So the U.S. State Department has launched a new countermeasure, enlisting people who know a lot about social media. That's college students. The U.S. attorney here, John Walsh, is part of the effort. The Islamic State has a really professional operation in English devoted to trying to win over young people who may be alienated to their cause. The Obama administration asked students to come up with a plan for how they'd use the Internet to take on radicalization. Walsh says the request wasn't limited to Islamic extremism. Could be anything. The whole point was not to be too specific so that we wouldn't be stifling good ideas that might come. Well, last week, teams from three Colorado schools presented their social media plans. The winning team beat out groups from the Air Force Academy and CU Boulder. Sharona Greensteiner is a member of the first place team from, drumroll please, Community College of Aurora. And uh, welcome to the program, Sharona. Thank you. What did your team come up with? What message did you decide to land on? Well, we came up with Thank You, America. And we came up with Thank You, America, because most uh, of our group are actually immigrants. So when we were talking about um, extremism um, and fighting extremism, combating extremism, we came up with a concept that uh, really spoke for us, for ourselves. And that was thanking America for the wonderful life and great opportunities that was given to us in this country. And the way it connects with fighting extremism is that this is the message that we immigrants should um, should spread and and let know to the non-immigrant um, as well as the immigrants. When we promote the concept of inclusion, the concept of integration, then we ha- we are making the job a little bit harder for ISIS to recruit to recruit those who are isolated. Because their message is the United States is evil and does no good, essentially. Uh, That's the message that you wish to counter? That United States does not have a room for immigrants. The United States does not um, um, give a place for the immigrant, that the United States um, is not a place for the immigrant, and therefore an immigrant should come up or find a better place, and that is what they are targeting. And and that was the, the exact issue that we wanted to combat because integration, inclusion, unity, the place, the concept that all immigrants have a place in this great country. And I want to say that those who have been radicalized are not all immigrants. It's important to note. Um, but this does remind me of the story of the two Somali sisters and their Sudanese friend from Colorado who were recruited online, tried to fly to Europe to join the Islamic State. Um, I wonder if anyone in your group has ever been approached with that kind of radicalizing message. I'm not aware of that. Okay. I am not aware of that, but I do know that those messages are there. And this is exactly what we try to counter in our social media. The and and web- so what, what is that going to look like? What is that going to sound like? The personal stories of immigrants or what? Exactly. What we are doing is we are showcasing personal stories of uh, successful integration of those that were able to come up in, to this, to come to this country and be able to find their place and become um, um, successful leaders in the community. Does that include yourself? Just out of curiosity. Um, I would not call myself a successful leader, but I would definitely call myself a successful integration and living the the American dream. So absolutely, in that in that sense. Will you give us a little of your backstory? 
Sure. I, um, I have a good story. Uh, some of our teammates have a very sad story uh, of, of loss and triumph. Uh, my story is more on a, on a good way. I, uh, met, uh, I met my husband, who's now my husband, who he was uh, a U.S. Marine. I fell in love with a good-looking, tall, handsome Marine who captured my heart and brought me here. What is the audience for this? So is it newly arrived immigrants? Is it an audience abroad that might be radicalized? Like, who do you think would respond well to this message and maybe have their minds changed? Uh, We hope to address all of the above, but more specifically, we hope to address those immigrants who come here to the United States who are already here. And we want to give them a message of hope and inspiration that becoming a part of this country opens the door for them. There is the opportunity to live good life, to reach and and, uh, to be able to achieve their dreams, good life, provide for their family, live safe life, um, and and provide uh, security and education for their children, and become part of this wonderful country. What are the platforms to do that? Is it is it the sort of traditional social media, if I can say traditional now, uh, Twitter, Facebook, or what? Yes, we have done we have done that in our social media platform. We have a website that we developed. We have the Facebook and we have the Twitter. In all of them, we showcase as I mentioned before, the successful stories, testimonies of specific individuals, immigrants that had been able to come here. Um, But we also, in our campus, we were also uh, developed different uh, civic engagements and events that we had the student participate. In addition to that, we were able to collaborate with the city of Aurora. And in our last event, they partnered with us and we had a recognition event where we uh, provided with a special recognition and award to two specific immigrant individuals who were able um, to uh, to do extreme great work with their um, welcoming of other immigrants in the community. And Aurora seems an appropriate place for this kind of work, given how many immigrants uh, resettled there. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if uh, our listeners are aware, but uh, 20% of Aurora residents are foreign-born. You know, this is the reason why it is extremely important for City of Aurora to make sure that we welcome those immigrants into our community. And, and it's also important to realize the contribution culturally, uh, as well as from business-wise, economically, their contribution to the success of our community. And you you will move forward now with your anti-radicalization campaign. I understand you got some money for your initial effort and you might be in the national competition. Is that right? Uh, We actually were able, we were uh, honorably mentioned in the national competition and we will go and we will share our campaign in Washington, D.C. in June 27th. So we did, uh, we will be there and be able to spread the good news and our message. Thanks Uh, for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much on behalf of my team and Community College of Aurora. The winning team uh, in this competition. And uh, as we said, they'll go on to the uh, D.C. competition as well. That's uh, Sharona Greensteiner. She's a history major at Community College of Aurora. And we'll be right back with a poet who's trying to find beauty in an existence that can be downright horrific. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Life can be both beautiful and horrific, 
and both fill the pages of Bad Fame, the first book from Denver poet Martin McGovern. Much of his work is set in Colorado, from Pueblo to Greeley, places we know. It's a finalist for a Colorado Book Award, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ryan. Let's jump right in and hear Processionalia. It's a poem set in Pueblo when you were a boy, but I understand there are three words you need to introduce us to before you read this. Uh, well, there are three words. Um, actually, four. The the uh, title I made up, Processionalia, um, a word shaganapi, which means a strap of leather. Shaganapi. Yeah. Um, a word scolia, which is um, it's sort of an exegesis of what um, – uh, early monks did with uh, sacred texts where they would write in the uh, the notes in the marginalia. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. like Mishnah um, in uh, uh, Judaism. Um, okay, so that word is scolia. Yeah, and, and the final one is um, protandric. Protandric. What a great word. What does it mean? It means, and it typically goes with um, insects. Uh, uh, both sexes in one insect. Oh, I see. To be to be both sexes at once right. is to be protandric. Right. All right. A vocabulary lesson. And go ahead and put them into context for us. <laughs> okay. Um, do you want the context or you want the poem? The poem. Okay. Processionalia. Out the Shaganapi of Colorado Highway 50, past Damon Runyon Stadium and the Steel Mill Lake, Slag pocket, second home for petulant boozers. Past the Greenwood Inn's music, still playing into mourning for 14-year-old boy men, slow dancing with divorcees. Past fields of radishes and Italian farmers, as thick as Chevy's. Past pink, purple, robin's egg blue, slick coats of Mexican shacks and the goat cheese shop, its parking lot full of black cars rumored Bigwig mafiosis, past the wrought iron gates and heavenly angels guarding Roselawn Cemetery with marble swords, past the blue jeans groundskeepers joking as they put away their shovels, past all this scolia to the canopied gathering and my ten year old acolyte altar boy self giving up cub reporter daydreams, home run daydreams. But not looking at the bronze casket, he'll get ten bucks for lo- helping lower, and not looking either at the protandric priest's smooth shaven jowls or the blanket of flowers rising from the lawn like phosphorescence. But again, but watching instead a bee abandon the tea roses and circle that black blossom of the widow's veiled face as if her tears were pollen and the bee could feather its legs with grief and change it, can grief ever change into honey. We've posted this poem and several others to cprnews.org if you want to absorb it further. Lots of imagery from Pueblo there. Uh, lots of imagery. imagery. The, uh, the cemetery is out uh, Highway 50 East, um, and... Um, I mean, the widow's black-veiled face uh, is like a black flower, I think. Um, I, I, I like the um, farmers as thick as Chevys. Yeah, what does that um, mean, the farmers as thick as Chevys? Uh, 
uh, well, let's see. Um, farmers are usually pretty, <laughs> uh, pretty strong and pretty um, solid. Strapping. Stra- <laughs> Indeed. I yeah. see. The thickness is a description of their of their bodies, not right. not of how many of them there are. No, their yeah. bodies like. Hard to push one over. Another of your poems is from the perspective of a child. In the poem Summer Indians, you explore how to navigate in a world that includes racism and violence, right. but also acceptance between different ethnic groups. Expound on that idea for me. It seems to be a Pueblo, a Puebloian idea. Sure. Um, I was speaking to somebody the other day about Pueblo, and... Um, when I grew up, it, it, it had a certain gangness to it, um, but apparently now it's it's very gang filled. Um, but back then, it, it was a steel mill of the West, um, and there were Polish uh, families, Italian families, um, Hispanic families. Um, uh, some African American families, white families, um, and it seemed that all the parents, when they were working, could get along. Um, and then, when their children became uh, teenagers, they didn't get along. I mean, there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of gang activity. Uh, my middle brother um, was a was a in high school was a well-known after-school fighter, you know, and people would call each other out and and then go to the park and watch each other fight. Um, and so you, you believe some of the harmony to have been lost as time has passed. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the Colorado poet Martin McGovern about his new collection, Bad Fame, which is up for a Colorado Book Award. How did you come up with that title, Bad Fame? I thought there was only good fame, right? As long as they're talking <laughs> right. about you. <laughs> um, that's pretty much it. Um, but I, uh, in a more literary view, I took it from um, Dante's Inferno. Hmm. Um, and essentially in, in, in uh, the third level of hell are people who have neither honor or, or bad fame. And um, so I put a, a, a little bracket in there uh, to make sure that, I mean, essentially it's, a, you know, the saying, um, uh, a bad reputation is better than no reputation at all. And um, not that I had a bad reputation, but um, I, I, it just seems to me that blandness um, – is more of a sin than bad fame. Blandness is the ultimate sin in your mind, not being interesting. <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. Yes. <laughs> wow. What a life view. I love it. In your poem, The Rainbow Diary, you describe a family setting out on a summer fishing trip. And then you imagine all the things that could go wrong. Right. And I'm going to offer listeners a warning that the poem is graphic. Um, but I, I would like you to have... Uh, I would like you to read just an excerpt for us. Sure. Um, And uh, part of it, um, way back when, people wrote a lot of poems about photographs. And I had a photograph um, that the Denver Post took of my family. 
getting ready to for to go to, on a fishing trip in the summertime. Of your own family? Yeah. Okay. Um, but I thought everybody's doing picture of blah, blah, blah. So I decided just to write it as if it, it were that. A picture poem. Yeah. Right. And I think um, you all asked me to stop um, where I say such a home movie. Oh. Because um, part of it too is that uh, you know, I, as a parent, I've learned, um, but even when I wasn't a parent, I mean, parents must worry about the most horrific things. Um, and then um, I remembered uh, when we were little uh, watching um, 16 8 millimeter films and the most fun was watching that go backward. Um, and, so, and seeing the film in reverse. So how, how about yeah. you read it for us? Uh, the Rainbow Diary. It's summertime. Let's go, everybody. Everybody ready? A family packing for a trip. Three boys, their hair cut in burrs. The mother holding a camp stool and looking at the oldest boy, who's looking at the middle boy, who's looking at the younger, youngest, while they duel with fishing rods and the father looks at the mother. Will they catch many fish? How much will be spoken? How much will be left unspoken? See the youngest slit his thigh with a fish knife. Watch the middle boy, his hand severed by the outboard and drifting like a small shoe toward the lake bottom. Is the oldest losing an eye, the iris snagged like a rainbow trout? Is the father driving their car with all of them in it into the river? Is the mother whispering prayers? How much love can they kill? How many fish can they catch? How many will they throw back? How many will get away? See the car fly backward from river to road. Such a home movie. Do you have a capacity to imagine the worst? I'm guessing you do, having written that. <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> when the nicest thing that happens in that poem is someone slits their thigh open with a fish knife. <laughs> I think, yeah, that, that's the kind part. And um, does that infuse other poetry for you? The, the cataclysmic thinking? I, it does. Um, um, the, 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 the writer who wrote the uh, interview to this book um, uh, talks about um, an ungodly anxiety that I have, but also an appreciation of the beauty of the world. The two can't coexist, uh, or, the, or can't exist, I guess, with the, without the other. Thanks so much, Martin, for being with us. My pleasure. It's Thank Martin, you, Ryan. Martin McGovern teaches creative writing at Regis University in Denver. His first book of poetry, Bad Fame, is a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. Those awards will be announced May 21st, and as I said, we've posted several of his poems to cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.